So I have a pastor friend who uh, tells a story about a woman who used to call the church from time to time, used to call the church office on a pretty regular basis from time to time just to, just to talk. This isn't really all that uncommon. Uh, every once in a while we get uh, folks who stop by or, or, or call and they sort of make a circuit, <laughs> like we're not the only church where they do that. Uh, this was a woman who didn't really go to church there. Uh, she wasn't really interested in becoming a part of the church. Uh, my friend didn't even know her her, her name or her face because she just called. And as soon as she said, hello, First Christian Church, she started right in. And uh, she would talk in this sort of stream of consciousness kind of way uh, for so long and for so fast, uh, for so fast and for so long that there wasn't any space for you to say, uh-huh, or gotcha, or I follow you, or or anything. She just called and developed this sort of way of jamming for 30 minutes in order to keep the other party on the line. <clears throat> so one day uh, when she called, my pastor friend uh, realized at the time I, he didn't have time to, to deal with this phone call or this woman, so, uh, so he put her on speakerphone, uh, true story, and just let her talk and talk and talk for about 30 minutes. Just the stream of consciousness thing where she kept talking. So she's talking for about 30 minutes, doing her stream of consciousness thing, going on about, you know, whatever. Uh, There's this one time when I was uh, doing this and then this happened and then, oh, did you know that, da, 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 and back to this other story, you know, that kind of thing, back and forth, talking and talking and talking for like 30 minutes. I know some of you all on the inside right now are, by the way, saying, there's some irony here, Mr. Preacher Man, who's going to talk to me for 30 minutes. (laughs) So back to the story. 30 minutes in, something happened that had never happened before. She asked a question and expected an actual answer. And uh, so she was saying, I came by the church the other day and met your Spanish pastor. Their building was also home to a Hispanic congregation uh, that was led by a man named Edwin Normandia. That's, That's germane to the story in just a second here. So she's going on and she says, I came to your church the other day and I met your Spanish pastor. What was his name? My pastor friend said, not sure what came over me. But when she said, I met your Spanish pastor, what was his name? What came out of his mouth? True story was this. Ponce de Leon. (laughs) True story. Uh, she said, yeah, Ponce. I was talking to Ponce the other day. <laughs> and she, she kept right on in, off to the races. Looking back on this uh, incident, my friend said, my pastor friend said, he realized that he put her on the speakerphone in the first place because he had just given up trying to communicate with her. She was so hard to follow that he just sort of threw up his hands and gave up trying to communicate with her. You ever had a conversation with somebody like that? Somebody who's really hard to follow? Uh, Maybe you've had uh, a relationship with someone where you have a real hard time communicating. Eyes straightforward. Eyes straightforward. When we are trying to follow someone who's hard to follow, don't be surprised if we stumble along the way or say crazy things like Ponce de Leon. Don't be surprised if in that struggle to follow, we do some things we shouldn't do. Don't be surprised if things come out that probably shouldn't. 
So here's some truth, friends. We are messed up, fallen, and foolish people. Let's call a spade a spade today. We are messed up, fallen, and foolish creatures. And any one of us, all of us, has the potential in our own lives to say and to do things we should not that make the Ponte de Leon incident look small. (laughs) Things have come out of my mouth where I thought, what planet do you live on, Scott? And that person goes away with hurt that I caused. I mean, listen, friends, Ryan Lochte is not the only dummy who goes around trying to cover up his own foolishness, right? In case you don't know, Ryan Lochte is the Olympic swimmer who reportedly may or may not have made up a story about a security guard who pulled a gun in order to cover up his own incident of vandalism. Who knows what the facts are, but listen, friends, Ryan Lochte is not the only dummy who walks around in life trying to cover up his own foolishness. The truth of the matter, honestly, according to the Scriptures, is that you and I are no better than Ryan Lochte. We like to talk as if we are. We like to share stories on social media like, what's this guy thinking? (laughs) When perhaps on the same day, things like Ponce de Leon come out of our mouths. And much worse. I, I want us to sort of raise this issue to be aware of this. This potential we have in each of us as we consider the actions of the disciples and Peter and even Judas during the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. Because I think as we're going to see, we are much more, we are much more like the disciples and Peter and yes, even Judas than we think we are. Jump in at verse 1. A lot of cool stuff to show you about how Mark makes this clear to us. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, press pause for a while, give some backstory, and then we'll jump back in at 1 and 2 again. It says this, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribe were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, to arrest him by stealth, And kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, press pause for a good while here. Here's some backstory. Uh, Mark has been hinting at what he just makes explicit in verses 1 and 2 throughout the entirety of the Gospel of Mark coming up to this point. This theme of Jesus' death and his betrayal has been played throughout Mark since the beginning of the book. In the beginning of chapter 2, When Jesus heals the paralytic that is lowered through the roof, Mark says some Jewish leaders were watching that scene and they were questioning in their hearts. In other words, silently to themselves, they were thinking, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. And Jesus, being Jesus, (laughs) names their inner betrayal. He brings it out and he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? He knew even then, early on in his own ministry, that many would not follow him. That many would seek, at that point he even knew, to take him down. Later on in chapter 2, that same group of Jewish leaders says to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Chapter 2 again, when the disciples are plucking the heads of grain, the Pharisees say, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? At the beginning of chapter 3, Mark tells the Pharisees that, that were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Mark tells us that the Pharisees were looking so that they might accuse him. In verse 6 of chapter 3, for the first time explicitly, Mark tells us, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, with the governmental authorities of the time, against Jesus, how to destroy him. As early as Mark 3, 6, we are told explicitly that Jesus' betrayers were seeking to kill him. When Mark lists the name of the twelve disciples in Mark 3, he lists Judas last and calls him the one who betrayed him. All three of what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the synoptic because they have a lot of agreement and overlap about how they view Jesus' life. All three of the synoptics list Judas last on purpose and call him a betrayer or a traitor. Again in chapter 3, we're not even out of chapter 3 yet. When Jesus goes home, a large crowd gathers around him so much so that he and his disciples couldn't even eat. And Mark tells us that Jesus' own family went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Again in chapter 3, verses 22 and 30, the scribes who come down from Jerusalem are saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. He has an unclean spirit. In Mark 6, in Mark 6, when he returns to his own hometown and begins teaching, it says, many took offense at him. Also in Mark 6, right after Jesus multiplied the five loaves and the two fish, and he walked on water and calmed the seas, Mark says, talking about the disciples, they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened, speaking about the disciples. In Mark 7, the Pharisees question him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Mark 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Halfway through Mark 8, in chapter uh, 8, Jesus begins very explicitly to predict his own death. Mark has been hinting along the way. We see the progress throughout the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus begins to say it himself. He says in Mark 8 that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Mark 9.31 says the same kind of thing. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. They, those listening to him, the disciples, did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Mark 10, same kind of verbiage. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. After three days he will rise. Mark 11, after Jesus cleanses the temple, verse 18 says, The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way, as he said in Mark 3, 6, to destroy him. And Mark 11, 27 and 8, it says this, they came and did in Jerusalem. He was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? In Mark 12, Jesus tells a parable where God is the owner of a vineyard, and the tenants 
who lease the vineyard from God, who are given the ability to live there by the tenant owner, are the very ones, the tenants are the very ones who betray the owner's son and kill him. Verse 12 says this, They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. In all of chapters 11 through 13, right before Mark 14, Jesus tells of the conflict between him and the established religious authorities and the temple system as a way of highlighting that many of his own people would betray him. The theme of betrayal is all the way through the Gospel of Mark from start to finish. And here's the thing. We hear all this, (laughs) we read the Gospel of Mark, and we think, well, of course the theme of betrayal is in Mark. (laughs) Of course it's everywhere in the Gospel of Mark. I've read this story. I know how it ends. I know how this turns out. The Jewish leaders and those who didn't follow Jesus and the people like Judas are the betrayers. They're the reason Jesus goes to the cross. So of course betrayal is throughout Mark. But that's not me. That's not us. I follow Jesus. Judas was the bad guy. I know how the story turns out. But notice here in chapter 14, the betrayal in Mark doesn't actually come from just the expected parties. Those who end up betraying Jesus aren't just Judas and the Jewish leaders and the crowds who don't understand. Mark wants us to see that we are all betrayers of Jesus. Here's part of how I know this is true. Jump back in at verses 1 and 2. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Mark is making explicit here in these uh, verses, at the beginning of 14, this narrative thread of betrayal. Now look at 10 and 11 again. At the bottom of that passage, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, they promised to give him money, and they sought an opportunity to betray him. Again, Mark makes explicit in 10 and 11 this theme, this narrative thread of betrayal. Now, some of you may remember earlier on in uh, our study of Mark together, this idea of the Markin sandwich. We've talked about it a few times throughout. A Markin sandwich is a, is a literary technique. It's a, it's a technique he uses, bread, meat, bread. It's a literary technique where he starts with a story or a certain theme, inserts something that seems like a totally random, uh, usually totally different story or theme, and then picks up on that first story or theme and in, in so doing, in putting together this bread, meat, bread sandwich, we begin to understand the whole. So that's what's going on here in 1 through 11. So it's a little like our friend on the speakerphone. 
It seems like Mark in this passage that we read earlier from 1 through 11 has, has logaria, which is just a word that means mouth flow. It's diarrhea of the mouth. It just keeps coming and you're like, what, how does this fit? Uh, but he's actually doing it intentionally so that we understand something that's not obvious at first. So when we read, as we're going to in just a second here, 3 through 9, when we read 3 through 9, the meat, we are meant to read into it at the least a stark contrast between this anonymous woman with the perfumed ointment and the disciples who have been with Jesus for years hearing him teach about his impending betrayal. And if, we, and if we understand what's going on in the larger context of Mark, as we just set in context a little bit there for a few minutes, if we understand what's going on in the larger context of Mark, we see where he's coming from and where he's headed. <laughs> we understand that he wants us to begin to see in 3 through 9 the seeds of our own betrayal in this scene. Starting at verse 3. Let's just see in ourselves the seeds of our betrayal in the angry disciples. And while he, verse 3, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper as he was reclining at table for a nice evening with the disciples, a woman came, which as we talked about last week was a little bit of a breach of etiquette in that day and age. A woman doesn't just barge into a dinner uh, of a bunch of men, especially if there's a rabbi there. So a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. It says very costly, Mark tells us. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Remember we said last week that this was a symbol of her love and her total commitment. Her total commitment to Jesus. She broke open this super expensive, probably family heirloom. But check this out. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. That's almost an entire year's wages. What are you doing wasting all that? But Jesus said, Oh, so that's how you feel about me. Okay, not exactly. But that's akin to what he says next. Am I not worth that gesture? Keep reading. But Jesus said, verse 6, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done, he calls it, a beautiful thing to me. They called it wasteful. He called it beautiful. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. There's something about where Jesus is headed here. She gets they don't. They can't admit it out loud. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Mark is giving us a window into the disciples' hearts in contrast to this woman's heart. Mark wants us to see their indignation and anger in this scene as its own betrayal of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. Here's another reason I know that betrayal isn't just someone else's problem. Here's another reason I know that Mark is writing into the text, our betrayal. You see, Mark uh, wrote Mark 
but not based on Mark's experience. Mark uh, became a co-worker of Paul and of Peter later on, but, but Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples. Mark gets his information for telling the story of Jesus from Peter. So when we read of betrayal in Mark, it's from the vantage point of someone who has been a betrayer. It isn't because Mark saw it first. It's because Peter told Mark personally. That's huge. That's key. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 26 and following. Mark telling us Peter's story as he has recounted it to Mark. When they sung a hymn, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It overlooked Jerusalem there. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's using Old Testament prophecy. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There's even a hint of hope there. Peter said to him, even though they all, even though they all fall away. You got your solid, faithful disciple right here, Jesus. I will not. Keep reading verse 30. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They all said the same. The Pharisees, the crowds, Jesus' own family, the disciples, Peter, and even Judas. They are just prototypes of our betrayal. When Jesus dies, only a small handful is left even watching. Jesus says, they're all going to fall away. And they do. Here's a fascinating thought about the Gospel of Mark. Mark's account is Peter telling his own story in proper perspective. There's a lesson here for us. The Gospel of Mark is Peter telling his own story with the proper perspective. <laughs> See, after all of this took place, Peter knew clearly he was a betrayer. Peter was aware that before the grace of God and the death of Jesus and his resurrection, in which he did believe, Peter was well aware that were it not for that, he's no better than Judas. Let me ask you this. Do you know somebody who's never wrong? <laughs> Again, eyes straight forward. You know somebody who's never wrong? It doesn't seem to matter the situation. They're never wrong. I've got a gift for picking out those people if you hear me straight. It's always the government's fault, the system's fault, my spouse's fault. A previous generation's fault. The following generation's fault. 
Maybe that person is you. I know it's been me. Maybe you are always explaining away everything in your life. Somehow it never seems around you to be your fault. It seems the responsibility for why something isn't working correctly is always someone else's. Never yours. (laughs) Friends, people who talk like they are never wrong aren't right. They're deceived. People who are never wrong are not right. They're deceived. They're not telling the right story about who they are. It's always the Judas. It's always the dumb disciples who don't get it. It's always the crowd. It's always the world. People who tell their life story as if they're never wrong are deceiving themselves by telling their own story as if they're never wrong. They've begun to believe their own hype. And this isn't just a Christian, non-Christian thing. I know plenty of people, myself included, who have claimed Jesus for decades, who are better at deceiving themselves as if they're never wrong than plenty of non-Christians I know. Many of us have become our own publicists in life. Managing some sort of outward public image to cover up what we know is our own betrayal. Pointing the finger at Ryan Lochte (laughs) when the only difference between Ryan Lochte and us is that he has a publicist. We've become our own. Most of us are really good at telling the story of our lives as if we are the one who holds true to the end. We assess others based on their worst behaviors and ourselves always on our truest motives. So we're our own publicists who are always the hero. Sometimes I think we perceive Jesus as so hard to follow <laughs> that we just give up trying. And he did say, he did say, you're following me to a cross where you also die. It's like we realize what Jesus is asking for us to do, to die to self. And we realize that's a tall order. And so we keep telling ourselves the wrong story as if we're going to get there somehow by doing that. If you're telling yourself this story where you're the hero, where you're the publicist, where it's always somebody else, you are deceiving yourself. Here's the crazy part. You want to know how to make following Jesus easier? (laughs) Start telling the right story about yourself. The Bible says things like, there is no one righteous, not one. (laughs) We all, like sheep, have gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Friends, I want to end with this question. What if we were a people, a community of people who told the real story about our lives? That would make following Jesus easier to follow because when we are honest about ourselves and we call our sin what it actually is, which is a betrayal against holy God, when we're honest about ourselves and we call our sin betrayal against God, we begin to create in our hearts space where God will work. Let's pray, friends. Lord, forgive us again.